Outdoor Edge introduces the all-new Razor Guide Pack. Coming in at 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the Razor Guide Pack has it all. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. going on everyone welcome back to another episode of the wisconsin sportsman podcast which is brought to you by tacticam this is your home for all things outdoors in the badger state i'm your host josh raley we've got another good one coming your way today i had a chance to catch up with sam billhorn of whitetail partners who as you probably know has been on the show a number of times before uh, but i wanted to have sam on because of the drought conditions going on in Wisconsin, depending on where you are, uh, you may be in what is considered an extreme drought in the state of Wisconsin this year. And there are lots of questions. What is that going to do to our deer hunting for the fall? What is it going to do for our habitat management? What is that going to do for our food plots? What is that going to do to deer antler growth? How should our hunting strategies change? How should our habitat management change given the fact that we are experiencing Such an extreme drought and not really any sign of this thing slowing up. So should it continue into the fall, how should our hunting look different? Sam and I get into all of that good stuff. So Sam and I actually had a two-part conversation. Uh, This is part one of that conversation. this This is kind of the first half of it. I aired the second half of it as last Tuesday's, I'm sorry, last Thursday's How to Hunt Deer episode. So if you didn't catch that, Uh, After you listen to this one, go look at last Thursday's How to Hunt Deer episode where we talked a lot more, uh, you know, hunting strategy, even out onto public land, how things might differ for you if you are uh, doing some hunting in an area impacted by drought, which, you know, honestly is much of the Midwest. So this is part one of that conversation. I really, really hope you enjoy it. If you do, make sure to head over to Whitetail Partners on Instagram, Facebook, or you can also check them out on line at whitetailpartners.com. No matter where you are, our team has a regional expert that can probably help you out. As of right now, we've got Whitetail Partners Wisconsin, Whitetail Partners Michigan, Whitetail Partners Ohio, Whitetail Partners Tennessee, and then myself, Whitetail Partners Georgia. So lots going on there and actually a lot of cool stuff coming up with Whitetail Partners. There's going to be a lot more educational material coming out from Whitetail Partners. Um, I don't want to say too much about it yet, but just know there is more coming and it's going to be very, very good. And if you like to listen to podcasts, uh, there may be something coming for you, but don't want to give away too much today. Anyway, great conversation with Sam. Really, really glad I was able to catch up with him. Now let's shift our focus just a little bit. We've got to pay the bills here and uh, we've got some amazing partners here at the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast that help us do what we do week in and week out. First up, I want to mention the Onyx Hunt app. I was talking with uh, one of the guys from Onyx today, and holy smokes, um, the features that are about to launch from Onyx this year. Uh, 
man, it's going to be phenomenal. They are going to, you know, in, in recent times, there have been some other um, mapping apps that have come out with some really cool features, some things that maybe Onyx didn't have. Uh, I still think Onyx was the most user-friendly, and for me, that's that's number one priority, and it's, for me, also the most feature-rich. But there are some features, you know, one or two here or there, that I'm like, man, I really wish Onyx had that. Well, there's an update coming that is going to, in my mind, solidify Onyx as the industry leader. There will be no doubt. Now, I can't say anything just yet about what these updates are going to be, but what I can tell you is that in the next couple of days, Onyx is going to be rolling these out, and I'm going to be doing my best to feature some of this both on my Instagram page as well as talking about them on the podcast. They are going to be absolutely huge. So if maybe you haven't been using Onyx, but you maybe you've got Onyx around, but you haven't been using it very much, you need to go give it a look here over the next couple of days. Keep an eye on what Onyx is doing. If you're using another mapping app, let me encourage you, go give Onyx a try once these new features launch, because I think you're going to be very, very surprised. So it doesn't matter if you're a land manager, a public land hunter, a mobile guy, or a guy that likes to sit the same stand all season long, Onyx is going to have some awesome features for you that are just going to make you way more efficient. So head over to onyxmaps.com to keep up with that and learn more, or you can find them on the app store of your choice. Just search Onyx Hunt app. Next up, Huntworth. They've got some awesome stuff coming out again this year. Still don't have a whole lot to talk about on that front, but I do know that this time of year, I love wearing my Durham lightweight pants. They go into the woods with me every single time that I go, when I'm scouting, when I'm putting out trail cameras, when I am trimming out spots for presets because I'm a saddle hunter. No matter what it is that I'm doing, I'm wearing those Durham lightweight pants. I've also got the Lodi pack with me, which is it's just enough, right? Like it's got enough room for your water bladder. You can fit a couple of trail cameras in there. If you're like me and you like to have uh, the big metal boxes that go with your trail cameras, you can fit a couple of those in there and uh, a good amount of water and be on your way. So that pack to me is just perfect. You can find the pants and the pack on their website, huntworthgear.com. Go check them out. And then last but not least, of course, Tacticam, title sponsor of the show. Man, I just took my bow to the shop. Uh, need to get that thing tuned up just a little bit. I started shooting a little bit uh, over the last couple of weeks. I should have been shooting more, um, but I haven't been. And so I shot a few times and I decided, you know what? I just want to take this in, make sure everything's good to go for this upcoming season. So just dropped it at the, uh, at the shop today. But one of the things that's really important to me this time of year is making sure that I am practicing with my Tacticam camera on the bow. And that's for a couple of reasons. Number one, I want to get used to hunting. Number one, I want to get used to shooting with that additional weight on there. It's not very much, but there is some weight added. Number two, I want to practice taking shots and keeping my bow up because once you shoot the bow, if you've got a, a deer coming in and you are filming that on your camera, you want to make sure you don't drop the bow. You want to you follow that deer because your weapon is your camera. And if you just drop your bow arm, you're not going to get footage of where that deer runs, which if you're like me, one, I love sharing my hunts with people, but two, I love having that footage so that I can go back and watch the shot and say, okay, did I make a good shot? 
and which way did he run? Did he pass this tree or that tree that's 15 yards further, right? Like the, the footage is going to show that. So head over to Tacticam.com. Go ahead and pick those up so that you can get shooting and practicing with them on your bow this year. Right now, they've got their 6.0 camera, which is their flagship model. It is insanely good. It's got a little touch screen on there, which is awesome. 4K footage, all the good stuff. So head over to their website, Tacticam.com, to learn more. Now, that's all the commercials. Guys, please do go support the partners that support this show. They they really do. I, I can't emphasize enough how much they help me when it comes to making this show possible. I couldn't do this show without these partners. This show would not still be around without them. So go show them some love. Now let's jump into this week's conversation with Sam Billhorn. All right, back on the show with me today is Mr. Sam Billhorn from Whitetail Partners. Sam, how's it going in your neck of the woods? Oh, good, Josh. Good to be back. Good to start having us get closer to hunting season. I'm I'm starting to feel the mood here coming on, so it's good. Yeah, it, man, it's getting close. I was uh, I was doing a, a little googling yesterday to figure out how far I am from my um, from my November rut hunt in Wisconsin that I'm looking forward to, and so I typed in how many days until November first, and it was 106 days. Mm-hmm. So we are we are getting very very close to you know, my favorite time of the year, but then obviously opening day is way, way sooner than that. So, uh, lots going on. Um, but man, there's this nagging thing going on in a huge chunk of the whitetails range right now. And unfortunately in a lot of States where people really, really like to hunt, and that is this massive drought that we've got going on. Yeah. We were just talking before we fired up this, uh, looking at the drought map of the Midwest and, we're like a bullseye here in uh, southwest Wisconsin. It's uh, It's been a tough year. I mean, we saw some decent rain uh, early May. Uh, planting went well early on for the farmers, and everybody thought we were off to another good year like we've had. But uh, it's been pretty tough going lately. We did have a good rain here uh, about a week ago here in July, uh, first, first week of July, and uh, it was... Uh, that was really needed to kind of rescue and get the crops going. But uh, otherwise, it has just been, uh, it's been as dry as I've seen it in many years. Yeah. So just to, to give people an idea of scale here, like we're talking a drought, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, uh, you know, Kansas, Nebraska, North and South Dakota, I think we're included in that. Uh, heading south to like Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, um, you know, parts of Mississippi and Louisiana, at least Mm -hmm. Um, just gigantic. And it's hitting a lot of what I would consider like destination whitetail states. So if guys are listening Mm -hmm. to this, maybe they're leaving Wisconsin for uh, especially the early season. That seems to be kind of the thing of a lot of folks that I that I know they like to head out of state early in the season, kind of maybe get some velvet hunting in or something like that. Um, it's impacting a lot of those states that people might want to uh, might want to travel to. What kind of impact do you think that's going to have on the hunting? Yeah, well, you know, and, and you talk about destinations too. I'm looking at this as like you know, Missouri. What we can sit here and can uh, can complain about Wisconsin, but uh, Missouri is is the, the whole state is in a pretty severe drought, and you know, I know a lot of people that travel there uh, from Wisconsin to, to go hunt there and. Uh, that's certainly something to consider. Uh, Southeast Iowa claim to claim to fame, you know, with the huge bucks there, they're kind of uh, in a tough spot as well. So I think that the early season hunt, I don't see changing too much uh, from a standpoint of 
those summer patterns. And, and hopefully with some rains, we'll have those uh, summer crops and patterns to follow. But I think it's more of that uh, middle time frame there where, uh, you know, we talk about acorn crop. That's one of the big things that we track and see where that's at. This could be a really down year for acorns because of that exceptional heat we had early, followed by a long stretch of lack of moisture. And, and that's one thing to consider. So I think that those, you know, if we are able to have good fall plots, th those plots may see even more activity because there's less browse. You know, you look at the trees now, uh, even, even the, you know, mature, well-established trees look very stressed from this drought and, and it's, uh, it's going to affect them. There's going to be some real changes. And I wonder just even about browse too, you know, once that, um, uh, you know, things start to uh, go down in the fall and, and the, the woody browse that's there, you know, this, it has not been a good year for that. I see trees even letting go of some of their new growth and leaves and, and all that, and that they are, they're just surviving through this time. And, and that's certainly going to affect uh, what we see in the timber. Yeah. And that, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm thinking ahead. As soon as you say woody browse, I'm thinking ahead to winter. And what is this setting yeah. the deer herd up for come wintertime when they're mm -hmm. really, really dependent on, um, on that, you know, fresh woody browse from the previous, previous spring. You got, you got me scared for all the thousands of uh, little conifers and hardwoods <laughs> I've put out here uh, diligently <laughs> the last few years. And yeah, oh, man. <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll be sure to do bud caps this fall and help them survive because uh, they'll, they'll browse pretty good on those Norways if we get a decent amount of snow. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sam, I, th I thought we'd break down the conversation in two different directions here. And the first one might sound a little bit uh, clickbaity, but I, I, I'm really interested to, to hear if this is something that we can do. I've seen some discussion on it, uh, especially on YouTube from some guys who are um, – you know, really serious about habitat management, uh, and that is drought-proofing your farm, you know, to the extent mm -hmm. that you can. And then the second half of the conversation, I'd like to talk about hunting strategy. Assuming mm -hmm. this drought continues, because I don't think we have a lot of reason to think it's going to let up anytime soon. I mean, we look at the two-week forecast, there's not just massive amounts of rain to catch us up coming. Um, you know, how, how will your hunting strategy adjust and change maybe on your own place and then, you know, if you're going to be meeting me on my favorite local spot there uh, in Wisconsin to hunt, or if you were going to be heading out of state, how might your hunting strategy change? How does that sound? Sure. No, that sounds great. All right. So let's talk about properties in general. Number one, mm -hmm. what is the state of your property after this drought? Like what, what kind of an impact is it having right now on, uh, on you and what you've done? and the, the improvements that you've got in place? Yeah, so there's a couple different things to cover there. Um, we have, uh, you know, our food plots are, are in tough shape from a standpoint of anything we tried planting spring plantings, which we do that. Uh, corn, uh, doing a good amount of corn this spring has been uh, significantly set back and even some areas to the point where I'll just be planting fall plots over on top of them just because our timing was poor. Generally, we try and time our corn to be late May, almost 30 days later than uh, what the farmers are doing because we want a later maturity date. We mm -hmm. want the we don't want the early browse pressure and also just to uh, try to be efficient with it, not have to plant any more than is necessary. 
we want to get that in later. Well, we really got hurt by that drought. And that's okay. We kind of accept that saying we can make up for this with summer plantings and even some fall plantings and, and have a good plot. Uh, one of the things that really is, I think, emphasized in a year where we have drought uh, is the uh, uh, effect of the cover crops that we've been doing. And that has been uh, really a game changer that we've done uh, the last four or five years on our property has been uh, getting in crop rotations. And depending on where you're at, I mean, specifically just to address Wisconsin, um, you know, southern part of the state, you can almost get two, two spring cover crops in a real early one as soon as things start greening up and a second one around mid-June for that then, say, early August planting. And in doing that, you know, the, anyone who's researched this for a short amount of time knows the benefits of cover cropping with um, keeping the soil cool, helping retain moisture, um, helping infiltration. It seems like some of these times we get these massive rains, you get two inches of rain dumped on you, but the effect of that on a you know very compacted uh, soil is that a lot of it runs off. Um, having a soil that is that uh, is more aerated and has some uh, uh, living root within it, it's going to absorb a lot more. So that you know that's some of the benefits we have of that is uh, soil have, uh, having moisture retention, also weed suppression. You know, it seems like the the weeds there's they, there's if there's a will there's a way. They get a drop of rain and they're growing. And, uh, uh, you know, all these things have helped us maintain uh, good soil and soil that's ready then for fall plots. I'm still optimistic that if when we do our plots here in early August that um, we'll have a good take. You know, we're going to look at the forecast, try and time some rain, get that seed out on the ground. And then uh, in terminating that cover crop, we will have a good thatch, which, again, helps with moisture retention on that soil and uh, we'll hopefully be still looking at a successful fall plot despite the harsh spring summer that we've had. Yeah. When this may be uh, kind of a silly question because your, your place is in Southwest Wisconsin. Is there a lot of moving water on your property already? No, I mean, we only have uh, where we're at specifically with Hill country. We have just the runoff that occurs with rainfall Okay. Um, we, we do not have any uh, streams or ponds or anything like that. We do have our water holes, which that's a, a excellent tactic we should talk about here in, mm-hmm. uh, in drought conditions. And that's still something that people could employ here yet this year if they wanted to is those strategically placed water holes on travel routes. And I'm talking just the tanks. We've, we've covered, covered that before. But, uh, you know, keeping those tanks filled with water uh, and, and building them in such a way that they – they can take water. You get this two-inch rain, you want to be able to recover or gather that. Um, I see all these water holes constantly. I always like to dwell on it, that they're sticking two inches above the grade or, you know, I buried I buried my water hole. Well, no, you didn't. The lip's above the ground. You know, getting it dished in so that they will fill up. My water holes were getting down there. They probably had four or five inches in the bottom of them, and we got that one rain and they're full. Um, and that that was very helpful. The other thing, which is a little more extreme, on one of my best spots, I've gone to now installing a tank, a reserve tank that's up the hill from that location uh, that's along my hunter access. So when I come into that stand location, I got a tank that's filled, and I can just open the valve on that tank, and gravity feeds that 
water hole fills it up and the deer are none the wiser as to where that water came from. And I'm keeping that tank filled. I am super uh, careful about not having hunter uh, any sort of interference on the land during hunting season. So bringing in a UTV or a truck to fill a water hole is, is a non-starter for me. So I, I wanted to make sure that I had the opportunity to do that. And we'll probably be adding more of those in the future, especially if we have, you know, multiple drought years. Yeah. Is, is this going to change anything about your food plot strategy for, for the fall? So we, we talked a little bit earlier of how this is going to impact browse. This is going to impact crops. Mm -hmm. This is going to impact everything that's going on out there, including, uh, including your food plots It's impacting your food plots. So, are you going to plant anything different than maybe you normally would, or are you going to anticipate hunting those plots differently, you know, given the conditions of the woods? I mean, those deer, uh, if you can get a good, lush, green crop rolling, you might be the best show in town by a long shot. That's right. And, and yes, I am changing what I'm going to do. And not so much, I shouldn't say changing, but just really on – my toes. I am going to be planting multiple seedings because the rain seems so much more regular and when it happens, it is intense. Um, I want to probably hold back a little bit on my seed and, and I'm going to, so I'm going to overorder on my seed. I'm going to probably have say 150% of what I might otherwise have. Um, I'll hit it with close to that hundred percent application early on, but then I've, I've always gone back and filled in holes. You know, you get a little hole in a brassica plot. You can plant, a, you know, a few weeks later, you can fill that hole in, or even a month, month and a half later, you can do a late season brassica, which just has a, a, a shorter uh, maturity date. Um, and you can get that, get that going. So I'll be, I'll be on top of it. I'll be wanting to fill things in. I do want it to be very dense too. Like you say, all of a sudden you've got a great food source in an area that we're, you know, surrounded by drought conditions. We could have really heavy browse, more browse than we've had in recent years. And um, we shouldn't be disappointed by that. We should expect it. So I think keeping a, uh, a higher application rate, multiple seedings coming back on top of it and just continuing to pour on the seed, I'm just going to anticipate that and have uh, more seed on hand and be ready to go. Um, cause I do think that will help my plots be more sustained throughout the season. Yeah. Any, any changes to the species that you plant? No, no, I still want to go with a good variety of, of seed throughout my plots. Um, because I don't have that corn, uh, that I would typically have or have as much of it. You know, I think I might go a little bit heavier on the bean now that I'm expecting to have pods and grain that way, but just, I think having a little bit more of that potential, um, will help me, um, you know, in the, in the longer run, have something that'll be out there a little bit later into the season. Yeah. On, on these plots, you know, especially with a year like, like this year, when there's a chance for this huge influx of, of browsing pressure, um, so much so that you may have trouble between the lack of rain and the number of deer getting a food plot started. Have you ever experimented with any kind of fencing, electric fencing, anything like that, and had any success? No, I haven't because it's all for us. It's been about timing, like I mentioned yeah. earlier, that we plant our corn later because in beans too. So 
we want the agricultural fields to get ahead of us and get that browse pressure uh, in the spring I'm talking now. And, and then our crops do better by being a little bit later. We run the risk of getting hurt by uh, early season drought, and that's what happened this year. And, and we just expect that, you know, and that's okay. Um, so, but no, I'm not changing things otherwise. Uh, or or you talked about the, the fencing. I haven't done that. I've thought about it with the corn because I like to see that corn just be perfect. Yeah. Um, especially late. So not so much protecting the germination and early growth, but protecting the grain and keeping them out of there until I want to unleash it, so to speak. Um, I, I haven't done that yet. I probably will at some point when there's more time in my schedule. Yeah. So as a guy, you know, originally coming from the South, heading up to Wisconsin, I still have, have not quite figured out the mystery, uh, to me of deer's relationship to corn. Uh, it, and the reason it's a mystery, it's cause it's like, some people say they will not eat it until it's towards the end of fully mature. Other people say they will, you know, start chomping on it as soon as they possibly can. And, you know, just talking about the differences and how, you know, on some properties deer really love to bed in the corn <clears throat> and then we'll move into the timber and browse in the evenings. Some deer like to bed in the timber and move into the corn in the evenings. What have you noticed when it comes to, um, you know, when the deer really start munching on your corn crop? Sure. Well, the other thing to mention is other critters too. I have a raccoon problem that I need to start exterminating, but, uh, um, <laughs> the deer though, what I like about it, and we don't talk too much on it. And I think it's just, it's important to bring up too, is I really like how corn breaks up plots. So I'll use yeah. it within plots for architecture to, uh, make it so deer have to move throughout a plot to see things. I don't want a deer to be able to come into the valley and just look over the whole field. I want them to have to bob and weave and move through that whole area to see what's going on and also provide comfort. You know, if you have a, like I have a, you know, almost three acre food plot in, in my main valley and they, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big area and it could, can be intimidating. Now we have a ton of a structure around it, edge feathering and um, bedding areas and switchgrass and, now we have trees growing up. So it's it's really becoming wild here and, and good that way. But I still like using corn and putting it in strips throughout the plots and rotating that. If you want to picture just these, not necessarily straight long rows, but, you know, these areas that it, uh, we stagger it throughout the plot and, and break it up just like you would a tic-tac-toe board. And, you know, I, I like it for that because it, it really provides uh, compartmentalizing the, those uh, plots. So anyway, that's more the visual part. As far as the attraction goes, they hit it, you know, I've seen it even earlier on in the summer, as soon as the ears are there, they're messing with it and figuring out what's going on, but they, they will really hit it uh, once it reaches maturity. And again, I'm referencing earlier, a later planting date, later maturity date, uh, they're going to be really hitting it. I think they, um, you know, if you can keep it into late season, that's where it's really the best. But yeah. you do need to have a certain amount to have it be sustained that long. Uh, you're not going to accomplish that with, you know, a five-pound bag of seed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Have you ever tried any kind of uh, irrigation methods for your plots? I mean, to, to do that on scale for the average food plotter seems really out of reach. Yeah. And, and, uh, I haven't, um, 
it, it's, I've thought about that, but it is, if you do the math on what a inch of rain is over, you know, and I could do it here quick over an acre or acres, it is a, an enormous amount of water. Yeah. And, uh, we don't have a good water source on our property. So that's, you know, a big strike one there. Um, and you know, just playing the odds and being flexible, um, weather patterns change. We, we have a phenomenal area and soils anyway, where we're at. Uh, and because we're in a Valley, we, we do have generally higher moisture levels than, uh, further up on the ridges and things like that. Um, you know, we, I would say just playing the odds, playing the numbers, we're generally in a good spot, but there's years like now where we have to be more creative and just come to expect it. That's just, it's going to happen. Just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point of view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. They're on the cutting edge, making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that is a total game changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions, you know just how frustrating it can be to try to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of mounts and adapters. This fall, I'm going to be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with the 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com, and share your hunt with Tacticam. Just a, a little bit of, of info there. Uh, one inch of rain over a, an acre is 27,154 gallons. Yeah, I don't have that readily available, Josh. No, no. And, <clears throat> I mean, if you just think about the logistics, if you did have it, of trying to – I mean, that that's roughly – if you've seen, like, an above-ground swimming pool, uh, one that's in, like, the 24-foot round range, that's about how much water is in one of those. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you would have to move that kind of water somehow. You know, yeah, maybe I'll buy a water truck someday and have it out there that we can hook it up. But there you go. I don't see that happening anytime soon. I just accept fate and uh, move on with it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. I I want to circle. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say one more thing that it's a value here, too, and just is hunting relates to hunting and say, I'm going to value some other types of hunting differently. So, like, you know, travel based hunting around those water holes and some of that stuff even more so than those food plots. Now, I'm still hopeful to have a high-quality attraction in my plots, but even if that was a complete loss, hunting those travel patterns, hunting those normal patterns that they have, especially pre-rut and so on, are going to be there. And, yeah. and I'm okay in accepting that, saying maybe there's some places I'm going to hunt a little bit more or uh, give a higher priority to uh, when it comes to those parts of the season. Yeah. Do you, would you ever consider, you know, looking at your property, let's say we get into the fall, your plots are struggling, um, still not a lot of water. Would you, would you consider like, Hey, this may be the time I need to, I need to head down the road to the local piece of public. That's got some good water sources on it or. Well, sure. If you're completely lacking things, I think you'd need to reassess it. Um, 
and I have the, you know, if I have other farms I hunt and other places I go to that I have that ability to be flexible. Um, you can do some late season plot saves. Like I talked about a late season brassica or do it, putting out rye and you'll have a very basic plot, which still is going to provide a certain level of attraction uh, with a high level of success on with a little bit of rain and, and, and all that. But yeah, I, I would consider, um, other options, I think you have to. You get too stuck in a rut of depending on one certain crop or a pattern that you have relating to food. You need to think about what are the other things these deer do. And and I mentioned before with acorns, you know, acorns kind of scramble deer a lot. Uh, they uh, they'll move about a property differently uh, when those are really peaking. And I think that um, with if that's lacking, and it's likely it will be. Some of those patterns we are aware of and control and have manipulated on our property are going to be really strong. You know, we might have some very, very successful early mid-season hunts that we didn't have on travel routes because they're just going from A to B. They're going from the water hole to that, you know, that one bean field that's still standing because that's all they got. Right, right. Let's back up then just a little bit and talk about water holes. We've, we've talked about water holes a couple of times before but it's, it's kind of been in passing and I I don't think we've gone Mm -hmm. really into detail, but I think as a, as a property owner, this is probably one of the best things that you can do to kind of anchor the deer on your property during a drought type of season, Uh, especially Mm -hmm. one where they're, they're not able to really get it easily from uh, other water sources around you. And number two, they're not going to be able to get it from what is their primary source of water. That being the, the browse that they mm-hmm. consume. I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, but I think that's like 70% of a deer's water for the day comes from browse. It's certainly the majority. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, let's talk about how you would install a water hole for somebody who, you know, maybe hasn't done one and now their, their eyes are open. They're like, man, this, this pond that's usually on my property or this swamp that butts up to my property, they're dry this year. What do I do? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing is assessing where you put it. And, um, when I talk water holes, I'm talking 100 plus gallon tanks, the bigger, the better. Um, and these are, uh, installed in travel locations. They're not installed in the middle of food plots. They're not installed in bedding areas. Uh, we're talking the trap main travel routes and specifically the best pinch points we have. So they're talking the best stands, you know, we design a hunting property, we'll lay it out, um, maybe a, a quarter to a third of the stand locations we're going to assign to have a water hole. So these are the best of the best. And in hill country, talking, um, uh, you know, pinch points and things like that, oftentimes a, a very common example I'll give is at the top of a drainage. So you have a, a steep drainage that occurs uh, where a hillside changes and the water's focused uh, from many, many years of runoff. That's generally a very difficult thing for deer to cross and there's defined travel uh, at commonly at the top or the bottom of that drainage and what I like to do then is say okay this is the spot we pick the tree pick where the water hole is going mock scrape as well and uh, get all those things put together uh, at the same time because you can't, don't want to just install a water hole and then say okay now where's the stand going you're always thinking about how those work together I like to see a water hole at 25 or 30 yards from a stand close enough for an easy shot, but far enough away that you can be a little bit sloppy in your, um, in your hunting. But, uh, 
anyway, once you had that spot picked, you found the spot. Uh, one of the details with that too is looking around for uh, quality runoff and maybe trying to utilize some very uh, subtle features in the land. Like, okay, there's just this, um, you know, one little draw that will focus water to a point. You're not talking big, steep ditches. You're just talking, okay, so a, a disproportionate water is going to run through this spot. And that might be looking around 20 feet in every direction and saying, where's the lowest spot here that water is going to run through or past and, and focusing on that. So you're, you're trying to anticipate where good runoff will be because you want to be able to capture that water when you have a decent rainfall. Um, and again, that mindset of if that's lit, that lip of that tank is sitting above grade, you have a problem. So anyway, digging out the hole, um, what I like to do is salvage the topsoil first. So take a big area like 10 by 10, get all that topsoil, uh, put it in a pile out of the way and keep it there because you'll come back for it in a minute. Uh, dig that uh, tub down to or tank down to uh, grade. So you know, topsoil, say you got four to six inches of topsoil off to the side. Now you're bringing, you're digging out clay or whatever sand you have underneath and digging that out and getting that water hole in there, trying to cast or, you know, throw that down downstream of where that water hole is, that, that uh, spoil, and get that out of the way. Get that water hole more or less flush to that lower grade. And what that you've done by that is now you bring the topsoil back you kind of funnel that. You can make like a big dish that comes towards that water hole. So you have already maybe this existing uh, drainage that brings water to this focal point, but specifically around this water hole, you got a good amount of drainage coming to it so that, again, you get that one inch rain, you'll fill it up because you're not capturing this, you know, 10 square foot area of this tank. You're capturing maybe it's 300 square feet uh, all around where this, uh, you know, between the existing grade and this grading job you just did, you're able to get the water to come in there. So that is, that is it as far as the install. One last thing, just from an erosion control standpoint, I usually plant clover around this uh, location. Takes well in the shade, in the disturbed soil, um, and get that get that growing. It is not a food source. It will eventually be stamped out and gone and, you know, the leaf litter and, and whatnot will choke it out pretty quick, but that's okay. You want to just help it get some root there that it's going to have um, erosion control effect for it. One last point I forgot to mention is when you're putting that tank in there, you want it to be as level as possible. I bring a four foot level and get that tank squared off as best I can before I do the backfilling. And what that does then is you don't want to have this uh, tank on, you know, be full on the brim on one side and get six or eight inches hanging out on the other side. Uh, <laughs> that also um, helps keep it from wanting to have any sort of heave that's on uh, unlevel. So anyway, kind of a little bit deeper dive there on, on what I would do to put in a water hole. But um, one last point I should make, uh, make mention of, obviously we're working with a deer corridor through this location, you know, deer travel. I always want that water hole to be on the opposite side of that corridor from the stand location. So and when I say opposite, I'm talking anywhere from two to 10 feet off that trail because what I want when a deer comes from either direction on that corridor, I want them to take interest in that water hole, turn towards it. What that does is gives you a quartering away shot or a, broad, a broadside shot 
Whereas if the water hole is on your side of the corridor from, uh, you know, between your tree stand and the corridor, obviously then that deer is turning toward it and they just turn towards you. So you have a quartering toward you shot as well as they're looking right at you. And we want to avoid that. Yep. When it comes to, you know, sinking these water holes, I've seen people put them, you know, trying to get and capture good runoff. They're in a spot that pinches down deer movement, um, but they will, you know, sink most of it. But because of how steep the terrain is, the back half of the tank sometimes will be hanging out, um, if that makes sense. So the, the one yeah. end is, is towards where the water runoff would be and it's flush, but then the back half is hanging out. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I've, I have one on a hillside like that. My answer is not the easy one, but I think it works best, is to simply find soil, excavate material, and sometimes okay. we've just dug a big hole um, 10 feet away to get borrow to bring back, and I want to build up that backside, okay? I, wanna, I don't want to have that lip on that backside be there. I, I really want it, I want to get, build almost a platform on that other side that a deer could at least walk around that water hole. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'd be better for usage that they would have. Uh, and, and really that, you know, if you think about that, unless, you know, a lot of times in those type of setups, you're on the downhill side for your stand setup. And what I just talked about a minute ago with that, wanting to have the water hole on the opposite side of the movement, you're really harming yourself by doing what you just described, because you're almost asking the deer to go on the opposite side of that water hole, uh, or it's just smack in the middle of the corridor because you're really hunting a, a side hill. Um, don't I would say don't do that. You pick, that that's picking a poor spot. I would rather see at least a big change in grade, like a picture of bench or where a big tree fell over, you know, 80 years ago and has rotted away, and now you have this a little, little bit of a shelf there, um, that there's something for that whole, um, you're looking for that grade to be a certain way that would help you put that water hole in and still have deer skirt around it. Yeah. What, uh, what size are we talking when it comes to these tanks that you're using? I imagine, you know, uh, this year may make some people wish they had a little bit bigger tank in the ground. Cause I'm sure there are folks out there right now who are thinking, man, my water holes are dry and have been for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, as important as the size is the depth and the okay. ratio, because, you know, I see people that, and there's some of these popular tanks, I won't mention names out there right now, but some of these tanks that are made to look more natural and they're very shallow, they have mm-hmm. a lot of surface area and you think, well, that looks great. It looks like a puddle. It's also eight inches deep and it's going to evaporate very quickly. Whereas if you have a deeper water hole, I mean, ours that we use, I think are at least 20 inches deep. And the deer will go right down to the bottom of them. They'll put their, their front legs right in the water hole and drink. Um, I posted pictures on social media of that, you know, and um, I like to see good, good depth. So regardless of the size, you need depth. If you're thinking little kiddie pool, uh, that won't cut it because it's just not deep enough. So you really want to have something deep, again, emphasizing a rodent stick and, and those things to let the little critters uh, get back out. But um I'd say a minimum 100 gallons. Um, and generally, I think the bigger the better. I think there's a point of uh, diminishing returns, certainly, with having, you know, you don't need to go out there and put in, you know, a 2,000-gallon stock tank. But uh, I think bigger is better from a standpoint of holding water. 
But um, these little water holes that we install, 110, 150 gallon tanks, they're they work great. Yeah, another another mistake that a summer like this one could prompt someone to make is when they start thinking about the number of uh, water holes on their property. They may go out there and just absolutely scatter their their yeah. their property with water holes, and it may be that may be effective for for a year like this. But but typically, how many would you say to put on a property? Yeah, so I made mention of that earlier where I said maybe 25% of your best, you know, that your best stands are going to yep. get these as far as the locations go. So, you know, that generally translates, you know, if I'm going to design and lay out a 40-acre property, depending on, they're, and they're all different. I've had 40-acre properties that we put three or four tree stands on because it was one guy and those are the best spots and that's all he needed. But if it's hunted with more pressure and regularity, there's maybe as, as many as 10 or 12 stands on a 40 acre property. Okay. And that's not, obviously they're used differently and there'll be seasons where they don't all get used, but that's more of like a max level. Right. Yep. Um, I would say at that point in time, a 40 acre property might have three or four. Um, so that's a, that's a smaller, more efficient property. I mean, in the grand scheme of, you know, we're talking, farms and bigger, bigger properties, but it, that doesn't mean on a 120 acre property, you're going to have 12. Um, it's not a ratio that you use per 40 acres. It's more about number of stand locations. Another general rule of thumb that I'll say is I'd never want to have one much closer than three or 400 yards. Obviously you're, you're stressing that a little bit more in these smaller properties, but bigger properties where you can start to focus more on the best spots and still have an adequate number of stands for the hunters that are there. You, uh, that number goes down as the acres go up. Would a, would a summer like this ever prompt you to put in maybe one or two more that maybe, you know, you're not going to, not going to maintain or, or, I mean, heaven forbid, no. have to go back in there and pull them out <laughs> later on. Cause that seems like a lot of work. Yeah. When you said that subject, I just said no, because it is a lot of work, you know, to do this and yeah, maybe you got machinery, you can do it and it's no big deal with a skid loader or something like that. I can see doing that. I mean, just, uh, maybe you do it in a food plot in a year you wouldn't normally do it. But, um, you know, I, I think it would have to be so desperate on the drought level to consider that. Yeah. Um, I, and I, what my mind goes to and what we've done this year, and I mentioned it before is working on, uh, sources to keep the water holes you have full. And uh, I, I think if there's any doubt coming into season right before season starts to go fill them up uh, using a UTV or truck for that, I'm all about that. I think that makes sense. But for me, like I said earlier, I want to have a more stealth approach. And what I did is I bought one of those, uh, I forget, you know, the food container, IBC tanks or whatever they're called. Yep. And uh, I built a tiny little roof structure, a couple, uh, panels of sheet metal with a gutter that fills it up and that's 40 yards away from my tree stand up on the property line and there's a hose that goes down to the water hole and I can open up that valve and fill up that water hole uh, whenever I come by that stand location and I cross through there to some other stands as well so I might go through there you know let 50 or 100 gallons leak out and then keep on going on my walk. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. That, that makes me think about, uh, one of my first, um, I guess trials with a water hole, um, was actually not too far from the place where we were living. And I, I had a, a couple hundred feet of, of hose, uh, 
where I could walk over to the spigot in my in my yard, turn the hose on, and fill mm-hmm. the fill the water hole from from where I was, and then just turn it back off, which mm-hmm. uh, seemed really good until one day when I turned it on and got that going, and then I turn it back off. Well, the hose was in the water, and it ended up siphoning all that water when I disconnected the hose. It ended up siphoning all the water back down the hill, which was not good. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that was pretty disappointing, but. Um, well, Sam, one of the last question I want to, I want to ask you is why not put a water hole in a food plot? Because that is something that I see all over the interwebs. And if something's on the interwebs, it must be true it and must right, be right, Sam. Yeah. Um, well, the redundancy of attraction is where my simple response would be. And to say that the food plot is an attraction, uh, deer will come there. They get moisture from those plants in that, that yep. food plot. Yep. plot. They're hopefully high moisture content plants in a decent year. And, um, you know, that uh, I don't want to waste that attraction at that spot. Yeah, they might come there. It might be a focal point within the plot. I'd rather use a mock scrape and have a, a tree that you put out there or a post with a mock scrape and have that be more of a social area that way versus a, a water hole. The water holes uh, also in those open areas we talked before about evaporation. Um, if they're exposed and out sitting out in the sun, they will dry up much quicker and be more difficult to maintain. Um, you know, I think if if somebody has the means and the topography to do it, to have a pond, you want those you know, like uh, more zero depth pond type uh, setups within the corner of a food plot or something. I'd say that's okay. I don't think deer are going to use that as much. I've seen properties where they do get hammered because they're very secluded, but um, that that takes a lot more work. It's not necessarily the typical guy that's going to go out there and do that. Um, but the water holes on the travel routes focus. That's all for travel. this week's episode. As always, it thank gives you a so whole, much for tuning in. Point for if you dig this show, be you're sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever it is. Number that you of get them your before. We're not, While you're not at it, have you can too many of these on a property and have them be spread out. That. Um, we want to use those in our best on hunting locations in the timber or at how to hunt food plots. Also, we're going to be really careful how we hunt them that we don't blow up that attraction. So there's there's many reasons I would point to to say no. I'm not going to recommend that. Please It'll go support be, the brands that support um, this show. And if you're looking for more great outdoor content, check out the sportsmansempire.com. Uh, the one thing that comes to mind is somebody who might only have a couple hunting locations or as well as a ton because of, of their awesome ability, maybe they're having, having to hunt in a blind. Make sure you make the time it's to get a, outside it's a, uh, and kill enjoy plot the location and they're only going to have two spots they go to. So some of that is specific to who the hunter is and how they set things up that I might design a water hole in a small kill plot. I have done that before for some folks. Um, but that's more the, um, the, you know, the unique situation than it is the norm.